morning, Africa, and welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Bungani in Washington. Today is Wednesday, May the 18th, and here are some of the stories we're covering for you this morning. Libya's incoming prime minister, appointed by parliament in February, left the capital Tripoli early this week after an aborted attempt to take the reins of power from the rival national unity government. He says that his ministry wants all Libyans to know that it is working to protect the lives and belongings of the people and that it is acting peacefully and within the limits of the law. That is Edward Iranian reporting from Cairo. The International Labour Organization says the latest figures show that there are 160 million children around the world involved in child labour. Our responsibility is also to ensure that we monitor our employers because we want to be workers that are employed by businesses of high ethics. Businesses that are going to ensure that they are not only to be driving profit. And the president of the Republic of the Congo, Denis Sassungweso, has announced the implementation of a bill to prevent violence against women. We'll have those stories and more coming up right here on Daybreak Africa. Stay tuned. And for our top story, Libya's incoming prime minister, Fatih Bashaga, appointed by parliament in February, left the capital Tripoli early this week after an aborted attempt to take the reins of power from rival National Unity Government Prime Minister Abdul Hamid Debeba. Violence erupted between militia supporters and opponents of Bashaga, forcing him to leave the city after several hours. Edward Iranian reports from VOA from Cairo. Militia supporters of Libya's two rival prime ministers fired rockets and automatic weapons at each other early Tuesday, forcing parliament-appointed Prime Minister Fatih Bashaga to withdraw from the capital after a failed attempt to take control of government administration buildings. Rival UN-appointed Prime Minister Abdul Hamid Dabeba's supporters appear to have forced Bashaga to retreat, leaving government ministries under Dabeba's outgoing administration. Dabeba warned that he would strike with an iron fist anyone adversely affecting the security of the people. After withdrawing from Tripoli, Bashaga said he hoped to return in the coming hours and would present his case to the people. He says that he received a very good reception during his three hours in the capital and was able to give his message to those in various positions and will address the Libyan people on Wednesday. Bashaga's interior minister, Issam Abu Zariba, urged all parties to respect peace in the capital. He says that his ministry wants all Libyans to know that it is working to protect the lives and belongings of the people and that it is acting peacefully and within the limits of the law. He urged security forces to cooperate with his government in order to take control of ministries in the capital. UN Special Envoy to Libya Stephanie Williams told rival forces in a tweet to maintain peace on the ground and refrain from damaging people's property. 
Libyan analyst Ibrahim Belkacem told Saudi-owned Al Arabiya TV that he thinks Bashaga has weakened his political position by trying to take control of the capital, but that Debeba does not have a very strong political hand either. The Libyan parliament, which appointed Bashaga, suggested last week that he set up his government in the central Libyan port city of Sirte, hometown of former leader Muammar Gaddafi, who was ousted and killed in a 2011 revolution. Aya Burwaila, a Libyan security analyst, tells VOA that she thinks Debeba's clinging to power represents a setback to democracy and accountability in Libya, as well as the unity of the Libyan state. She also defends the proposal for Bashaga to set up his government in Sirte so Libya can cease being hostage to the militias in Tripoli. Debeba, who was named prime minister by the UN in 2020, was due to step down after elections that were to take place in December 2021. He refused, however, to resign after the elections were postponed. Libyan parliamentary leaders and the country's ruling Council of State held talks in Cairo over the weekend to discuss various political issues, including rescheduling elections and what to do about resuming oil production and sharing of oil revenues. Edward Uranian for VOA News, Cairo. U.S. President Joe Biden has authorized a deployment of some 500 troops to the East African nation of Somalia to conduct operations against the al-Qaeda-linked al-Shabaab insurgent group. This reversal of a Trump-era decision to withdraw the troops comes as the nation's parliament elects a new president. VOA's Anita Powell reports from the White House. Somalia's new president will soon see the return of U.S. forces to the Horn of African Nation. The 500 elite troops are tasked with pushing back al-Shabaab, a violent extremist group that has destabilized Somalia for more than 15 years. Monday's decision reversed the Trump administration's 2020 withdrawal of all 700 troops then in the country. New White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre. The decision to reintroduce a small but persistent uh, presence was made first and foremost to maximize uh, the safety and effectiveness of our force and enable them to provide better support of our partners. Additionally, our partners can benefit from our more consistent support and engagement in addressing the threat posed by al-Shabaab by having a small uh, but persistent U.S. military presence. And while there is risk, it is manageable. White House officials said the troops would come from nearby bases on the continent. Officials did not say where U.S. troops would be positioned, who their targets may be, or how long troops would be in Somalia. U.S. military and counterterrorism officials describe al-Shabaab as al-Qaeda's largest, wealthiest, and deadliest affiliate. They've recently grown in size and become more aggressive, killing at least 30 Burundian soldiers during an attack on an African Union base in southern Somalia earlier this month. The U.S. public has long been wary of involvement in Somalia after the 1993 Battle of Mogadishu resulted in the killing of 18 U.S. service members. The Pentagon defended the decision. Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby. The point is al-Shabaab remains a threat, um, and, uh, and that threat, we, we assess, uh, uh, not only continues but is increasing. And this is the best way for us to continue what has remained a very valuable advise and assist and training mission. It's just this is a better way to do it. It is not clear whether Somalia's new president, who was elected on Sunday, made this request. Somali security analysts say the move is welcome, especially if the U.S. resumes airstrikes against al-Shabaab, but also say that the military solution is not the only one. Samir Gade is executive director of the Hiral Institute think tank. 
the airstrikes were keeping Al Shabaab at bay, but once those airstrikes stopped, we saw a resurgence of the group. The airstrikes and the offensive operations are not the solution. The solution is really a Somali government that really works on this in a coordinated manner that's societal-wide. The, the problem in Somalia is a political problem. It's political settlements that needed within the elite. It's a clan problem. All of these things need to be resolved. The grievances that push our youth to join Al Shabaab need to be resolved. It seems no one is safe. In February, a suicide bomber targeted the presidential villa, killing at least six people and wounding more than a dozen. Nita Powell, VOA News, the White House. The International Labour Organization says the latest figures show there are 160 million children around the world involved in child labour. The figures were unveiled at the ILO's fifth global conference on the elimination of child labour now underway in Durban. Vicky Stark reports from South Africa. In his opening remarks to delegates, the head of the International Labour Organization, or ILO, Guy Ryder, said of the 160 million child laborers, half of them are in work that puts their health, safety and moral development at risk. Ryder said 89 million of those children are between 5 to 11 years old and that child labor is rising in that age group. He called for action to put the fight against child labor front and center. We know what works in a big sense. We know social protection, we know education, but the people who know the specifics of circumstances are the people at the national level. There has to be national community ownership of this. So it's not somebody who's gonna fly in from Geneva and tell colleagues from other countries the specifics of their own country. The fifth global conference on child labor is the first to be held in Africa. The ILO estimates most child labor on the continent, about 70%, is in agriculture, where children are often working alongside their families. The European Commission announced that it will invest 10 million euros to mainly target agriculture value chains where child labor is prevalent and exports to the EU significant. The president of the South African Congress of Trade Unions, Ngiswa Lozi, said at a national level there must be political will to end child labor. Importantly at the level of government is to ensure that labor inspectors are playing their role, to ensure that we don't just hear about it, but we go and see and ensure that there are also penalties. Lozi challenged workers to be whistleblowers. Our responsibility is also to ensure that we monitor our employers because we want to be workers that are employed by businesses of high ethics. Businesses that are going to ensure that they are not only to be driving profit. Anusha Kava is chair of Alliance 8.7, an organization working to meet target 8.7 of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals to eliminate child labor by 2025 and forced labor, human trafficking and modern slavery by 2030. Kavar is in Durban to urge more countries to adopt strategic action plans and monitoring. Currently, there are only 26 Pathfinder countries signed up for this. We are co-producing global estimates about child labor and forced labor. And this is a very important issue for each of the governments and countries that take a step into implementation because you must know where you start the work and where you end it. The fifth global conference on the elimination of child labor 
is taking place at the Nkosi Albert Latuli International Conference Centre in Durban and ends Friday. Vicky Stark for VOA News, Cape Town, South Africa. Daybreak Africa continues. The President of Republic of the Congo, Dennis Sasungweso, has announced the implementation of a bill to prevent violence against women. It is called the Muebara Law, named after the president's mother. But the measure which allows women to file complaints against aggressors has its critics. They include men who say it is not suited for Congolese society. And from Brazzaville, Rossi Pioth has the story. Since its implementation on May 4 by the President of the Republic, many people are talking about the Mwebara law, but not everyone supports it. For example, any man who expels his wife from the home without a legitimate reason would be fined between $318 to $3,183. For women, it's a welcome instrument of justice. Grass is a young woman working in a local oil company in Brazzaville. She says that the legislation protects all women and identifies and responds to all of the issues that women face in their daily environment. She says she is proud that awareness campaigns are being organized to explain the law, to inform women about the protection it provides, and to let them know their rights. Actor and feminist Lisbeth Mabiala welcomes the law, but still has a mixed opinion. She says that... She does not know if public opinion was taken into account when it was drafted because certain sections, instead of protecting women, is constraining them if it's misunderstood. She says she hopes this law will not make women rebellious. The Mwebara law also says that anyone condemned for marital or domestic violence will be prohibited from exercises all or part of his civic rights, such as voting. Christian is a young Congolese man, in his festies, married and father of a daughter. According to him, those who drafted this legislation did not consider the public before passing the Fernay law. He says that this law is biased because it does not take into account, in fact, the feelings and experiences of men. He says that this law should include what men think. Unfortunately, this has not been done. He says that this law should rebalance things, which is not the case today. This law will push men into polygamy. The ongoing debate is raising the awareness of women who may determine if the law needs to be changed to better reflect the needs and the concern of women and their families. For VOA News, Rosie Piot in Brazzaville. Nigerian startups, mostly in the financial technology sector, attracted nearly a quarter of the $5.2 billion invested in African startup companies last year. That is according to the African Private Equity and Venture Capital Association. Timothy Obiezu in Abuja profiles the mobile money service Crowdforce to examine what is attracting investors to Nigeria. In February, the Nigerian technology startup Crowdforce announced a big break. It had received $3.6 million from investors to expand its financial services operations to many more underserved communities. Co-founder and chief executive officer Tommy Ayorinde says new funding will boost its mobile agent network from 7,000 to 21,000 this year. We were looking to scale faster and really gain market share. 
And what we are doing was also very impact related because what we're doing is we're creating jobs, right? We're creating avenues for people to make extra income in their communities. So it was also very interesting for impact investors to really be a part of what we're trying to do. Ayurinde helped launch Crowdforce seven years ago. He intended for it to be a data collection company. But after about two years, the company completely overhauled its business model when Ayurinde realized they could feel a need for bank accounts. When we collected data on 4.5 billion traders, what we saw was a lot of them didn't have bank accounts. And then the ones that had bank accounts had a very tough time accessing the cash that was sent to them. Um, and that's where we kind of realized, look, there's a bigger problem to solve here. Experts say about 60% of Africa's 1.2 billion people lack access to banks or financial services. Technology startups in Africa are trying to fix that, says the African Private Equity and Venture Capital Association, or AVCA. In a recent report, the industry group said African startups attracted $5.2 billion in venture capital last year and that West Africa, led by Nigeria, accounted for the largest share of investments. AVCA's research manager, Alexia Alexandropoulou, says investors are looking to tap into Africa's huge population of young people. There is a strong demographic dividend. So almost 60% of Africa's population is um, below um, 25 um, years of age. And Africa has um, the the most youthful population um, in the world. And as, as such, as the proportion of skilled labor increases, then we expect to see a surge in human capital a human capital which is um, necessary to power African businesses and also to drive um, industrial development uh, um, on the continent. AVCA's report also cites increased internet penetration in Africa and more favorable government policies as contributing to increased investments in financial technology services or fintech. But fintech expert Louis Dike says there are obstacles to overcome in Africa, such as weak currencies and policies. It's still made up of virgin markets. The standard of living is quite low and our regulations haven't been consistent in recent times. The government can say this today and tomorrow retain other decisions. And this is part of the reasons of things that affect majority of startup activity. But with new talents emerging in technology, more startups with big dreams are emerging in Nigeria and elsewhere in Africa. Timothy Yobizu for VOA News, Abuja, Nigeria. Working to achieving sustainability in textile production is one of the projects of the UN Environmental Programme for this year as it accelerates its 50th anniversary. In Ghana, an entrepreneur is supporting this agenda by recycling waste textiles and rubber into shoes. Sanano Todd has details from Takoradi in Ghana. Peter Anowi is a sustainable fashion innovator and the owner of shoemaking company Koliko. He salvages textile waste and used rubber from car ties to make shoes. Anowi says his sustainable shoes contain about 75 to 100% recycled materials. 
So a typical 100% recycled shoes from Coleco is made out of discarded uh, jeans, uh, woolen fabric, and used car ties. So the discarded jeans mostly is the outer part of the shoe, what we, be, we mostly see in the shoe. And also the woolen fabric is the, uh, what we use in lining our shoes. And the sole is made out of this discarded or used car ties to make the shoe more durable and very lasting. Anoui gets his textile waste products from households and second-hand clothing markets. Ghana has the largest second-hand clothing market in West Africa and is the largest importer of the textiles, second only to Pakistan. Every week, about 50 million items of rags and used clothing from Europe and the United States are shipped to Ghana. But 40% of those items are not fit for use and harm the environment because they contain toxic chemicals and plastics. Justin Tinsungo is an environmental health analyst with the Sekendita Kradi Metropolitan Assembly. Tinsungo says when the rags are discarded, they produce harmful solid waste. What is left is being thrown elsewhere. So it ends up in our drains. So uh, in our bid to dissolve these drains and whatever, we got to realize that the plastics complementing these uh, fabrics is the result of what? The flooding we've been having within the metro. And uh, it is imminent. Anytime it rains, let's say within an hour or two, within the central business district, you see that most of our drains are choked and there's flooding all over. Anoui warns that Ghana's drinking water is threatened by dyes and chemicals from discarded clothes. According to Rachel, textiles waste is really taking over the world. And if we don't stand out and do something more sustainable to bring this menace down, uh, in some years to come, we wouldn't even have good drinking water. Ghana's textile industry has been growing significantly over the years and generates waste, most of which is dumped in landfills. Sustainable fashion designer Elizabeth Adams says Ghana is making steady progress towards sustainable fashion, but notes a huge deficit in awareness. The fashion industry, that's the designers, those who even create the fashion items should be educated on sustainable fashion from the beginning. Then we move on to the consumers who consume these products. Okay, so if a consumer knows they are investing their hard-earned money into sustainable items, fashion items. They don't mind um, how expensive it is. They would go in for it. Industry research suggests Ghana can become a leader in the secular textile economy because of the availability of a large labor force and huge quantities of second-hand clothing. It will be up to entrepreneurs like Peter Anoui to lead the way to this sustainable transformation. Sena Anutor for VOA News, Takrade. Ghana. Mali's military junta says it thwarted an attempted coup last week led by army officers and supported by an unnamed western state. Kano Abdullaye Maiga, Mali government spokesperson, read a statement yesterday on state television saying that the takeover attempt by what he called a small group of Malian anti-progressive officers and non-commissioned officers occurred the night of May 11th to the 12th. He said they acted with, quote, the unhealthy intention of breaking the dynamics of the refoundation of Mali, end quote. The statement gave few details on what allegedly happened. 
However, a military source speaking on condition of anonymity spoke of around 10 arrests and said others were underway. And that's it for this edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for spending this morning with us. Until next time, I'm Jackson Vungani in Washington wishing you a great week ahead, Africa. VOA brings you the best in African music on the African beat. African Beat showcases the latest and the greatest of contemporary African music. From bubu music to hip life, bonga flavor to sukus, Afrobeat to Ndombolo and Makosa to Kwaito. The African Beat on VOA has it all. And it's happening right here, Mondays through Fridays at 09.05 and 20.05 UTC right after the international news. Hello, I'm Douglas Simpoga, host of VOA's Reporters Roundtable. Join us every Thursday as we discuss important African topics and events. I'll have a panel of African journalists and expert guests to discuss the topic at hand. We take a deeper look at important after news topics. That's Reporters Roundtable every Thursday at 17.30 UTC 